Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest's name is Nina Hale. I absolutely had a blast. She is a spunky personality, uh, got a lot of wisdom and a lot of advice to share. She owned a digital marketing company that uh, specialized in SEO and she started in 05, grew it um, from small, her own self, all the way up to, I think they're up to 70 employees now. And she actually decided to go down the ESOP route. So she's a few years into that and has a lot of wisdom to share, why she chose it, kind of how she structured it, the pros and cons are over certain situations and certain terms and conditions she chose. So absolutely love it. Falls right in line with some of the other um, podcast interviews we've had because we had a couple consultants on that are talking about the strategy, but now we get to hear it straight from someone who's done it. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview with Nina. Nina, thank you very much for coming on the show. Ryan, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm very excited for today's show and having you on for many reasons. Um, you and I, uh, I saw you on a panel at the ACG event here in Minneapolis and you were given your story and I really wanted to get you on the show because um, you've gone through an exit option that I think a lot of my listeners are curious about. Um, but before we jump ahead, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a backdrop on the business that you ran and a little bit about you. Okay, thank you. I I founded a digital advertising agency, really a media agency, and I founded the agency in 05. And before that, I had worked directly in digital for about five years, five or six years from the late 90s. And I had worked in media advertising before that and radio advertising and um, computer animation. So I was always interested in digital. I was always interested in advertising. And lo and behold, the internet really took off when the World Wide Web was created. And, um, and I found a wonderful way to go into that. So I founded the agency. I actually resisted growth for about two years. But I had so many wonderful clients coming to me that I really didn't want to say no. So I started hiring at that point. And when we talk about digital agencies, what we did and what we still do is very focused on, you know, digital is very measurable. And so we focused always on performance digital, meaning, you know, advertising that that could measure your lead or the value of a lead for lead generation or e-commerce. So that was sort of the difference with my agency. I got into search engine marketing very, very early on. And for a couple of years there, I actually narrowed in and I did only search engine marketing. And that allowed me to work with a lot of partners and work with a lot of other agencies as the search engine provider for agencies. And that's Google AdWords, the ads that you see turned into ads on Facebook. Now we have expanded a lot and we do a lot of social media. We do a lot of content strategy. 
We do a lot of media buying, so banner ads, Pandora, and we're only now just actually starting to offer a little bit of traditional buying in advertising, so newspaper, TV, et cetera, for a hmm. couple of our long-term clients. So that's the business. And I, as I said, I resisted growth for a few years um, and then started hiring more aggressively. So we've added about 15 people a year for a number of years now, and we're up to about 70 people. But as we'll talk about, I actually did sell the company uh, about three years ago at the end of 20. Uh, at 13 or in 2013 and um, and have now made this transition that I'm sure that we'll talk about. More. I I love it. So what, what year did you found the company? I founded the company in 2005. 2005. So curious, why did you resist growth? What was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Well, I, um, I, I was, I'm sort of, I'm actually risk averse. I'm, I'm actually kind of a, a difference from a lot of entrepreneurs who are who are who love the risk and I love I love crisis I love big moments I love deadlines I love energy but I'm kind of risk averse so the idea of of keeping other people alive and keeping people you know making sure that I was really I've always been and that was part of my ESOP too I've always been really focused on the other people around me and making sure that I was able to have a really good sustainable job and future for other people was a little scary for me at first. And, um, and I wasn't worried about being able to show work and get the work. I just wanted to make sure that I can provide an environment that was a really good job for other people. I love it. Did you ever, I mean, so writing the payroll check, was that, was that easy or is it just making sure that they enjoyed coming to work and had a, a place that was stable? Where was the, the focus for you? Um, I think that the focus for me was more in the latter, a place where they could come at work, come to work and feel stable. But also as part of being risk averse, I've never hired ahead of, I mean, we've never been in debt. We've never taken any debt except for the sale. And I'm the debt holder for that. I did a promissory note. Mm -hmm. And, and so I wanted to make sure I did want to make sure that there was always enough work, that there was going to be enough work for people and that I wasn't ever going into debt. I've never taken out loans, that type of thing. So that definitely was part of it. And also I just, you know, I used to repeat the statement of, um, I know it's a poem, I can't, I can't remember the source, is the roads to glory uh, lead but to the grave. So I used to sort of say that, that <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily about the glory Although there's something wonderful about saying, I own a business, I founded a business, I have an agency. And that was a beautiful moment, too. So there's some ego involved, but we'll talk about ego as well, because that's a, it's a big hot topic. It's for a power, me. powerful thing, isn't it? So um, what, <laughs> did, what did you do to put the, 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 the pedal to the metal to all of a sudden start hiring 15 people a year? I mean, if you're concerned about, you know, making sure that there was work for people, I mean, did you, was your business just set up? perfectly for growth? I mean, kind of explain that for me, would you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we were doing digital and measurable digital. And, and I actually started hiring right as the recession was coming in strong. And what was actually happening was that people were pulling back, marketing departments were pulling back their brand spend, but they were putting their money into demand generation. And, and at least they still had to make money. 
So what better way to make money than to get the customer who is waiting at your door, right? And, you know, you've got people lined up outside your door on Black Friday. You want to open up those doors. And that's what search engine marketing is. And that is, those are the people who have gone to Google and they are looking for your product. They are pretty close down the funnel. So that's what I was offering right at that time. So my business was growing. More and more uh, companies and uh, marketing departments became aware of this and pursued it and put their money into it. So we, for a long time, I mean, granted, I had wonderful salespeople. I spent a lot of time doing sales. I worked very, very long hours. And, um, and so it's not like we just answered the phone, but in a lot of ways we did. We, we spread completely by word of mouth. And we, you know, our clients would call their friends and say, who are you working with? Who do you suggest? People would get to know about us. I would do a lot of networking. So, so our business grew organically in that way for many, many years. And that's kind of what still is happening. I mean, there's bigger goals. There's 70 people now. And so we're, we're certainly looking, you know, we look for more sales and we go through periods where we get nervous about things. But again, we've never, we've had one unprofitable month in the entire history of the company. So, and that was, I think it was oh, <laughs> or something or oh nine. <laughs> Uh, well, that's something to be proud of. I mean, that's not not a lot of companies can say that they've never had a um, a month like that. You know, everybody's well, usually got got the, the the battle wounds. Well, knock on wood. You know, nobody should get nobody get too relaxed. <laughs> so you you know, I, I kind of see the a little bit of the the trend. So you 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 were growing. You mentioned that you were working sixty plus hours a week or something like that. And obviously you've got a lot of pride in your work that you do. So explain the the journey in your head that you're going through. As you know, I mean, I would say on the scale of the companies that I've seen in, I mean, like the from 05 to two thousand seventeen, and you actually transitioning doing all this in a very clean, um, and planned manner is is not normal and <laughs> so oh, what, well, what what went through okay. your head as you were trying to do this because i mean it it, it, it there was i read the article online and how successful it was so when did you decide that you should start thinking about this well uh, a couple of different things there's a great quote from joe kennedy that said you know what how did you make all your money and he said it but it was from selling too soon and, and that stuck with me. And, mm. and so there was a point, and with all business owners, where you're putting, you're plowing back the profits into operating income if you're growing or into growth and various things. So even though I, I you know, there were a couple of years in which I made less in, than I had made in my previous job, but, um, and I certainly started making a very good living, but most of the, most of the profits and the money from the company went back into the company. So there's that moment with business owners in which you say, am I ever going to see my work come to fruition? Am I going to see some cash from this? And I didn't have a need for cash, but I had a, I was very aware of my long-term financial goals, my long-term plans. So part of it was that there was a lot of different reasons for thinking, when is it time for me to get out? And part of the desire to, when is it time to get out, was get out, sell too soon. 
it's fine. I've hit a point in which I've got this sort of magic number in my head that I feel I want to make, and I know I can make that at this point. So that exists, and and I'm getting a little burned out of working the really long hours. I built it up to a certain thing. I I you know had at this point hired an absolutely fantastic managing director. Uh, whose name is Donna Robinson. I just have to shout out. She's just the most amazing person. And and we get along very well. And um, and so she was, you know, we were, I think, both looking for ways. I was looking for a way where I could start backing out. She had more of a background in running larger agencies and coming from larger agencies. So it made a lot of sense to start making that shift. And I knew, and so my first thing was, asking her, are you in for the long run? Do you want to run this company if I back out? And she said yes. And at that point, that's when I said, okay, I've got that in place. You need to have a succession plan and you need to have an exit strategy. I think that there's another very good line that says, if you don't have an exit strategy, you don't have a strategy. (laughs) So you have to be thinking about what your long-term plan is, even if you may never hit it, you know, and, and I had seen a lot of people who had, you know, put in a lot of time and effort and then gone bankrupt. And I didn't want that. I thought this is the greatest job I've ever had. I'd like this to be my last job if possible or my option of my last job. So a lot of those different things went into that choice. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about succession planning and as you grow and, you know, the whole kind of thing. Do you want to do you want to be king or do you want to be rich? And I didn't <laughs> go into business with the prospect of making money. That was not my goal when I started this company and this business. Um, but, you know, when you put in that kind of time and effort and, and the company starts being a company with a value attached to it, then you start saying, okay, well, do I want to be king or do I want to be rich? And I think that I would like to be able to secure a bit of my retirement plan and and feeling that I don't need to have, associate my ego with this. I feel that my life and my self-worth is not necessarily caught up in this. This is the only thing in my life. And feeling, all right, I can start making this transition and look towards an exit for myself. So I can I don't even know where to dive into that because there's there's so you I so rambled. oh no it's every bit of that was amazing and that's where I want I'm trying to figure out where you know where to go with that because there's multiple pieces that I want to touch on one is that you had said that you listened to Allie Harding's podcast on the identity and it sounds like you were able to distance yourself in your ego from the business and it it from just on the surface it seems like because of the things that you were in your mind, the magic number and all these standards that you had for yourself. So I want to quickly j- jump into like when in the timeline is this happening? Is this like 2009? Is this, you know, is this 2012? When, when about was this happening? No, let's see. It's funny. I can't quite remember. So this was, this was at the end. So in the middle of 2013. Okay. So the company had been in existence for eight years and for not for all of those years, for but for a good six to seven of those years, I had 
always worked a 60-hour work week, wow. except a couple of times I went on vacation in which I worked a 40-hour work week. <laughs> and and so, you know, that was that was tiring. I was I was tired, and but I wasn't unhappy. But I, that's when I started looking for what are my options here, and I did a little bit of research and and started talking to a couple of brokers to see if I was the right size to sell to another agency. There's a lot of sales, a lot of events that go on in, in marketing and advertising, and there's an enormous amount of consolidation in the industry. So, uh, you know. The great big agencies buy the smaller agencies, and this is a very normal thing. So I started looking into that and and learned that I probably was not quite big enough to do that really well. So can I can and, I interrupt for a sec? Because I yeah. got I got a question for you. Um, because it has when you're talking, this is a big uh, topic, I believe, from a lot of the people yeah. I know. The difference between. Yeah. Do, am I working with an investment banker or a business broker because they've got different thresholds and the kind of the quality of your team that you can build? Um, so when you, and this kind of ties into your magic number, um, so when you were looking and you're saying big enough, are you referring to revenue or pre-tax income or EBITDA or what were you judging? Some oh, right, of the- right. Yeah, revenue. It was revenue and, and EBITDA. So um, we were we were profitable. We had very good, solid profit margin. We had no debt, and we had steadily growing year over year growth of twenty to thirty percent growth in revenue and EBITDA. So we had we had solid numbers. But you know, I think we were a you know five million dollar company at the time. Whereas right now, we're now a ten million dollar company. Mm-hmm. So um, so meaning in terms of our annual revenue. Was was five million and ten million respectively. So, so I did not work with an investment banker, and I did not do a huge amount of research on this. I I talked to a broker, to one of sort of the most the the bigger brokers who does the big deals, and so and he said, oh, there's lots, there's there's plenty of other ones who will work with you, of other ones. But I can give you the name of people who will work with you. And he said, but I don't think that you're in the best place to make the sale right now. You're a little too small. It will be it will be a little bit rocky in some way, and and an important thing for me in my research and doing this was that as much as I wanted to make sure that I got my money out of the company, I also wanted to dictate my own exit. So if I had sold to an investment banker or to another agency, I would have been back in for the seventy-hour work week for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And that was, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't want the money so much that that was what I wanted to do. So I pretty quickly started looking at the idea of an ESOP, which is, you know, employee stock ownership plan. And the ESOP allowed me to basically dictate how I wanted it all to go. And um, because I was selling to the company and still working at the company. I could have just turned over the operations and the CEO role to Donna, but I also at that point thought, it's, I need to be, I do want to start getting some of my money out, and I also want to have it not be, I want to do something good for my employees. And I thought, okay, I've hit my magic number. Anything above that, is going to, my husband and I are, are quite philanthropic. And so anything above that is going to be philanthropy. And and so who would 
the first people I should be philanthropic to are the people who made this happen. Okay. And that is the people in my company. So I thought, if I'm going to be philanthropic in this way, as long as I get my number, I may as well put the rest back into helping out and giving it to all of these other people. Because, you know, we were at a point where it definitely wasn't just me anymore, even if the company was named after me. So that worked really well for my own mindset. I got the number I wanted. I got to be a hero. Although, you're not, if you're going to do an ESOP, you're not going to be the hero as much as a hero as you think you're going to be. You're <laughs> Why still is that? Be a hero. You're still going to be a hero, but because, uh, nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. And also, you know, you give somebody to something, they're really appreciative, but and, and they think it's awesome. But it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like you, you, you know, you're just, uh, people, uh, people have other things going on in their lives. So it's not like the, the sole thing in your life was building that company and working at that company. No matter if other people are the owners and working there, they don't have the same dedication to the company, even if they're partial owners. They didn't build it from being a baby, so it maybe shouldn't, you know, and um, you shouldn't expect that. You shouldn't expect that, that even if you, you create a sales opportunity and you create an ESOP, that, that all of the new owners are going to have the same type of ownership model that you had as you created it. That's just not realistic. If they have that kind of personality and mentality, they'd be off starting their own companies right now. Yep, yep. So... When you were going through this, first of all, curious on like how did was it just research online that you came across the ESOP uh, strategy, or did someone bring it up to you? Oh my gosh, you know what? I don't know. It it could have been research online. Um, I it's I, I I truly don't remember how I fell into this idea of the ESOP, but it fit with all those mentalities, which. You know, I got my number, I got to be a hero, and I got to dictate my exit. So it's like, oh, that's that's check, strikes. Check, 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 right? <laughs> yeah, that's a triple win. That's good. So uh, in, in, I've had a couple ESAP specialists that are consultants in the ESAP world, and it's just such an intriguing strategy and I think there's a lot of ups to it and there's a lot of moving parts and I want to yeah. kind of maybe start at the, the kind of the beginning of the sequence where how did you get the business valued? Um, the same way anybody else does. You get the business value by hiring a valuation firm and they come in and they go through all your books and all your plans and all your staff and they, they do the same thing that all valuation companies do and they they you know and they look at industry statistics, they look at, you know, competitive things, they look at your growth plans. And they look at previous sales in your industry and they come up with a valuation for what the company is. And then, you know, they look at the, there's, you know, of course, there's the financial value method, there's the strategic value method. And for us, because we get an annual valuation because of stock price, and they put together their lists of, well, what are we, what are the different, here are the different methods. This is what it would be if we were looking at this method. This is what it would be if we were looking at this method. And this is the amount we're going to take off because of liquidity factors or various, these are the risk factors that we're going to discount your price from. So the way that they valued it is the same way anybody else would because this is, is a highly regulated, ESOPs are highly regulated by the government. 
And so, um, and so, you know, you need to follow all the same protocols that mm -hmm. any other company does. However, it's fairly friendly because as, as you go into doing an ESOP, you hire your own lawyer and accountant and valuation firm, and then you also hire the quote-unquote opposing lawyer and accountant and valuation firm. And they all know each other because they all have <laughs> all the <laughs> And it's all fairly friendly. It is a financial valuation, so you lose the strategic value. So, you know, you have to make sure that you're okay with, you can still get a very healthy, good price. But if you're in an industry where there is a very high strategic value to sell your company, where somebody will come in and give you a much higher multiplier for the price of your company because they want your territory, they want to put you out of business, they want your clients for whatever reason, and they want your, your proprietary knowledge, um, then, then you're going to get a strategic value that will not be on an ESOP. ESOP is going to be a financial value. So that, I think, turns off a lot of people from the idea of an ESOP. And you have to be a certain size. You have to make sure if people, if a lot of people are turning over at your company, you need those people to own the stock to, to, um, to have that value be built up in people who aren't leaving. If everyone vests and then leaves, there's a lot of money going out of the company. So there's a lot of things that kind of, the stars have to align in a certain way, and you have to be okay with, with giving up some of the strategic multipliers. I, but other than that, it's fairly friendly. Everybody is, it's not like you're doing some really hardcore negotiation for the price. What, <laughs> Everybody what, kind of agrees on one. Well, which is, and I've, I was on the other side of that, right? We, we did a, strate yeah. a strategic sale and loved the people we sold to. However, right. I, and I really do because all of my employees just absolutely love the place that they work and I and I couldn't be happier. However, when you're sitting across the table from a strategic buyer, like it's you versus them because you're fighting over the same dollar. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. And you you owe it to each other. They have a fiduciary responsibility. Right. Yeah. So do you. And you guys both owe it to each other to strike a good deal. So when was there any surprises when you do the financial valuation like that? Was there anything that sh uh, like shocked you or was there anything that you did specifically in mind because you were going to go down that route? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of different things. So, so I was actually surprised. I got more than I thought I was going to get. Yay. Well, that's, <laughs> that I was going to say that's, that's definitely a win. Yeah, and that was because. <laughs> I did a promissory note, which means that, that I, you know, it's a fancy IOU. I wrote the loans to the company and they are paying me off over time. And so I sometimes call it the long goodbye. And I think sometimes we all wish it were faster. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's good for the company because we have time to pay me off and yet still plow a lot of money back in and into the company. And um, so I got an interest rate and, and, by doing a promissory note and self-financing it, rather than going to a bank and getting the money to pay myself off, um, we got a much lower interest rate than we would have paid at a bank. But I still, I collect that interest, so that's more money because I'm getting that interest every year, that interest payment. Which and I, was, which I, sorry to interrupt, but I saw on that article that it, like was sort of on five percent or something like that is what you agreed. Yeah. Which is a fantastic interest rate, by the way, that yeah. you're pay, paying off your employees that you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. 
um, you know, it's good for everybody. And um, and then, but then also something that I had not even thought about, which you know, my lawyers definitely did think about, was the uh, was warrants. And so because one of the notes was unsecured. Which kind of, you know, it's it's sort of like, well, it's not secured anyways, because if it goes belly up, the company's still not going to be able to pay you, which keeps me, my skin in the game. I got a lot of skin in the game still. Mm-hmm. And, um, but but because I did this as an, uns- one of the loans is an unsecured loan, there was a warrant set up. So I have, I can buy a certain amount of stock at a, you know, fairly decent price and strike price and then can sell it. The company has to buy it back, has to buy that stock if I buy it from me a year after my loans are paid off. And that has the potential, and that's great because, again, that's a lot of skin in the game. It keeps hmm. me making sure that the company is doing well. And and that is that was totally above and beyond the sale price. Wow, and cool. so that is potentially a lot of money as well. And um, And so that was a surprise for me. Uh, the other thing that was a surprise for me is not in the sale, but is in is in as the ESOP is playing out that that there's a lot of different ways of doing the ESOP that I thought I knew and I didn't know, and none of them are are startling problems. But I would have done a couple of little things, and it's like levers have to choose this type of vesting plan or that type of mm-hmm. vesting plan. And I would have chosen the vesting plan a little bit differently. Well, I would have done. You can do one of two, and I would have done the other one. And um, and and I would have set up more stock appreciation rights as bonus type incentive things for the employees. So there's some little things like that that I would have done differently. Um, and so, you know, and I don't, I don't know if I really like my attorney. She was really wonderful. Um, and now we are working with, uh, a very specific ESOP focused, um, Hmm. you know, financial firm and they are absolutely exceptional and they're the ones who tell me things where every single time he calls at, he tells me something and I say, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm so glad I knew this. That's so fantastic. I want to, so you you mentioned the stock appreciation plan. I don't know if this is exactly um, correlated, but like I, I, I'm curious. I want to dive into because you had mentioned about other people getting portions into it. And so when you're divvying up these shares, I think the big mystery behind this, and and I think a lot of the people that I talk to that are interested in it are when you get all these shares and now you've got quantities. What percentage of the business do you keep or do you get rid of? And yeah. how do you get the next level management? Because I think as you say, your name is Donna Robinson or something. Um, yeah. So how do you get someone like that? That is like your, you know, your next level key managers. How do you get them to now become larger shareholders without, you know, um, going out of compliance with the rest of the employees? Can you kind of shed right. some light on that? Well, you know, an ESOP is it's set up in a very specific regulatory way, enable that enables all employees of the company to become owners of the company. So it has very strict rules around being too top heavy in terms of ownership. And that is another reason why you need to, you know, take really care of how you set it up and how you do your pay structures 
and there are payment caps. So, so you determine the length of time of your ESOP. So a lot of manufacturing firms might do a 50-year ESOP. They are going to take the full value of the company, and they are going to pay it out in 50 annual installments hmm. of stock. I did about as short as anybody would recommend, which was 15 years. So 15 years from now, all of the value of the stock will be gone. And uh, except any anybody who has sold out or retired or left and sold, their stock goes back in. So there's always a possible circulating pool. But mm -hmm. remember, I work in the advertising. So I said, you know, advertising, 15 years, digital, millennials, like I, I'm lucky if people are not on to their fifth job by the time <laughs> by the time the end of the ESOP rolls about. So I did a very short term one so that people would know every year there's actually a fair amount of stock that is getting released. So the stock, and so this is all highly regulated, and the, the amount of stock that everybody gets at the end of the year correlates to their salary. So if their salary is 2% of the total salary pool that year, they get 2% of the shares of stock that were released. Huh. So, so if somebody makes more money, then they're going to get more stock. So that's a, that's a reason to keep those top people, that you want to keep them. Um, and, but if it's too top heavy, then the government will step in and say, no, that's wrong. And there is a cap, there's a salary cap where you only get enough stock up to a certain salary level. You can get paid more, but you're not going to get more stock for that. So, so if somebody is paid like you know a million dollars a year, I think that the cap is somewhere in the two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, I was going to say I think it was a quarter million the last time I saw it. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's that's something to be aware. Of. But then there are there are retention. So there's a lot of sort of shadow stock that you can set up in the beginning, and that's something that I wish I had done more of. And what I would have liked to do is more retention stock. So Donna definitely has retention stock, and to in, to encourage her to stay. Can you can and, you can you explain a little bit of the retention stock? Yeah, the retention stocks are stock appreciation rights, and and it it pays out you know twenty percent. There's a couple of years where you don't get anything. And then if you're there, you're third, three years in, you get 20%. Four years in, you get 40%. So I'd encourage you to stay for six, seven, eight years cool. uh, to get all of that stock. Mm -hmm. And I would have liked to do more. I wish I had done more of the retention SARS. That would have been a good thing. More, um, more with more with other employees is what you're saying, or more, yeah. more quantity with Donna? Um, more with other employees. Got it. I, I wish I'd been more tuned into the entire thing on that. So I would have liked to do more with other employees. And um, and then there also is an option that if we hit certain goals every year, that we get performance stock as well. And that we are only allowed to give to a very small number of people. And, and we would have done that differently. We would have opted for more of those. And we would have opted to give it to everybody because we were planning on giving it to everybody the first year. And then we found out we can't. Like, you can give it to a tiny, tiny amount of people. And that was that was really kind of a bummer for us. And we would have liked to have shifted that and do more every year. And what that is is that if you hit a certain goal, you you can grant. You can grant. You don't have to. And we haven't granted the full amount we could always. You can grant a certain amount of shares two people and and then that strike price 
and then it, as the stock grows over a couple of years, you can set the period that it then will pay out in cash a couple of years down the line for however much it grew in that time period. How cool. So if the strike price is at 20, we met certain goals, we get the stock, we give it to people, let's say it's $20 a share, they stay with the company, they really help grow the company, three years down the line, it's $100 a share, they get $80 per share that we gave them. So I, we would have liked to give that to everybody. <laughs> that yeah, been, yeah. That's kind of our, our MO anyways. We yep. sort of are trying to look for a way to share the wealth. Now, the reason was your earlier question about how did I decide to sell 100%, to do 100% ESOP, I was originally just going to do 10% and see how it went. And I was going to kind of peter it out over a number of years and see how that went. Now, I was paying very high taxes, personal taxes, because I was an S-Corp, and it went through, all profits went through my personal tax. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was, I'm sure every single person who interviewed <laughs> talks about this. Yeah. And I am, and I am, I am happy. I mean, I am a hemorrhaging heart liberal. So I am happy to pay my fair share of taxes. However, it was kind of a bummer. <laughs> it was a lot of money. And there was a couple of years, and you know, you're putting the money back into operating income. And so there was a couple of years in which I actually had to sell some of my investments in order to pay my taxes yeah. because <laughs> I had been profitable. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, congratulations. Here's your yeah, $300,000 bill. <laughs> I know. I, I, I have this little tax thing that says how much, you know, it's like a fake tax form. How much did you make last year? And you uh, write it down. Send it in. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and so, you know, an ESOP is not taxable. Because you are, it is it is an idea of sharing the wealth. That it's a very specific regulatory thing that was set up. So all of a sudden, I went from this idea of saying, "Well, gosh, we took all of the profits that the company was making, and and half of that went to the government." Okay, well, what if we were an ESOP and we took all of the profits that the company is making, and none of it goes to the government? It all goes back into the company. And, and that was really, that was one reason that convinced me. Now, of course, my loan, I have to pay capital gains on it, but it's slightly lower rate than, than the regular income would have been. So I, you know, get 20% knocked off that payment when I get my loan payments paid. Yeah, and then, and, uh, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, so most of the acquisitions that happen in the SMB marketplace are asset sales because a lot of them are strategic yeah. or financial buyers are coming in and they want to get rid of the liabilities. But in the ESOP, you're selling stock, and the difference between asset and stock is the difference between capital gains and ordinary income, correct? Correct. And, and what is interesting is that if down the line we sell to another company, they can buy all of, they can write off, all, because of that asset sale, the ESOP remains that way. So they can actually buy all of the goodwill, all sorts of different things that you would usually not be able to acquire if you were acquiring a company. Hmm. So that is a big benefit for a company who's looking to make a buy that they, if they go and buy an ESOP, there's a lot of problems because they're buying a company that has multiple owners, but mm -hmm. and who and they've got to figure out how to how to buy it so that everyone doesn't take the money and run. Mm -hmm. um, but they there is a lot of benefits to a company acquiring an ESOP company. Um, 
so so I decided that not only financially did it make more sense to do 100%, but also it went along with this idea of not confusing anybody. I really wanted the company to be successful, the transition to be successful, and I thought if I do 10% and then I do another 10%, it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Is you know, really leaving? Is she going to leave? Is she not going to leave? Does she own the company? Does she not own the company? And I wanted to be very clear and have people not focus on all of those sort of what ifs and focus on let's just get back to work. Let's just get down to work. So it made more sense to me to do that because it felt like it was going to make the company more successful and and if I did the 100% be soft. Well, because, I mean, your employees, like you said, they're focusing on their lives and to make one more variable into there is something that's already probably pretty confusing. You're, you're going to probably not capitalize on the benefits of having a culture that's all unified. Yes. Yeah, but it's not all unified. And also that, you know, even as we did the session, because every year I backed off my hours a little bit. So there was, you know, there was one year in there, the second year in which in which we hadn't quite made the CEO transition yet, where I, I, and so everybody was confused, myself, Donna, we were all, the staff, everyone was confused, who's running the show? <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the more you can, you know, and that's risk, that is a risk factor mm-hmm. for running a business, and it's a risk factor for you as somebody, are you leaving or not? <laughs> are you in mm-hmm. charge or not? And, and you have to, again, get your, get rid of your ego, get, get your ego out of the way and focus on the big picture. And, and that was, you know, at different times for me, uh, you know, you want your ego to come up. And then I said, well, no, my, I wanted to be working less. I did want to be in charge. I wanted, you know, all of these various things. So trying to remember that and not let my ego get in the way. It's an important thing to remember to do. So how did you do that? Because you you, you said the business was not you, and, and obviously you, you still you still struggled with it. I mean, what were some of the things that you did to remove the ego and to transition your time on a weekly basis? Well, the first couple of years, so the first year, you know, and this was all planned out. Year one, I, I'm one day a week off the grid. And we didn't even tell clients. It didn't matter. I just I just wasn't in the office that day, and I wasn't looking at my email. But somebody would call me if my email was monitored. Somebody would call me if I needed to. And clients would call me, and of course I'm going to pick up the phone. You know, I'm in a client business. Client calls me, and I have one client. If I swear it was the show, she knew what my day off was, <laughs> even though she didn't know. She thought I was working full time. She knew. She always called my day off, <laughs> and I was always like, "Hi, so great to talk to you." Um, <laughs> But, um, but, you know, that was okay. And that, you know, there was no big confusion there. I was still, I was still the CEO. I was still running everything. And, you know, I had this wonderful, you know, executive team who was doing great things. And the second year was a little bit more confusing because I was sort of off the grid. I sort of didn't want to be there, uh, you know, all the time. I was working more than I wanted to. There was all sorts of different issues. And that one got tricky because that was also the real shift from, the company growing up and getting bigger and being not really Nina's company, but a company named after Nina. Mm. And, and 
you know, it's really important to remember that there are all these people, especially their owners of the company, they care deeply about the company. And the first couple of years that I was in business, I was, I stripped away my personality. This is not about me. I don't have a personality. I'm wearing a gray suit to every single thing. I wear a gray suit alone to the office, but I'm not going to see anybody all day long. And, and, and as the years went on and as, as everyone knew the results of our company and, and that, that we were providing this incredible service and we had years of, of background of case studies and of numbers and of results, my personality came out a little bit more and I'm sort of this kooky personality and I can't um, imagine you holding back your personality based on the panel well, the panel that I saw too. Right. And I don't anymore. <laughs> I really don't hold back my personality. And that became a problem where where a lot of people said, you know, you're on there tweeting on Twitter and well tweeting on Twitter, my God. <laughs> I, I like old, I'm twittering and um, <laughs> doing the Twitter. And um so I'm on there tweeting things that maybe some people didn't quite agree with or didn't think that was quite brand right. And so I had this big sort of thing that said, well, what do you mean it's not, I'm not brand, I'm, I'm, I'm off brand. How can I be off brand? I am the brand. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that they had a really good point. And that was, I think, a stressful time for all of us. And of, of me, and I was very aware mentally that I needed to remove my ego, that it wasn't about me, that I needed to hand over the reins and no longer be the, the spokesperson for the company. And, and being a spokesperson is good because I'm highly passionate. I was ashamed in school of getting a B. You know, getting a B was just like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I never should have gotten a B. I could have gotten an A easily. So that is the personality I brought into my work, and that's what is imbued in our values and culture. But at the same time, people didn't want, you know, Nina making off-the-cuff remarks about things when we should have been a little bit more buttoned up. And, and remembering that the long-term goal is to do this transition that it's not about me being able to be my kooky personality. So where have you and, been, where have you been uh, focusing that kooky personality? You have like hobbies and things that you've been doing uh, to replace the uh, 70 hour work weeks you were doing? Uh, yes. I, <laughs> uh, I, so I grew up in a, my mother was a rabid feminist. So the idea of sewing in our household was not a thing that was done. We did not sew. <laughs> the girls, the three hail girls were not taught how to sew. And my mom had a very professional job. My dad had a very professional job. So I am at the Minneapolis Technical College, part-time in the apparel program, learning how to make clothes. No way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, your, is your mom still around? No, she's not. She, oh, she's what would she? Over, she rolled over in her grave. I was just going to say, what would she be saying? Oh, she'd probably be asking me to make her non-itchy clothes <laughs> <laughs> because she had complained that all her clothes were itchy. But, um, uh, but you know, so so that is, you know, you can't. I love working part time at Inhale because that's a huge part of who I am and what I became. 
Um, but I have other passions and interests, and and I love learning new things. And so this is something that I'm learning. I have no desire to create a company out of it. I already have the best job that I could have. I love digital marketing. I love working for this company that was named after me. Um, and I love doing what we did and, and having those results, having those interactions with clients. But I like learning new things and I like new challenges. And this is a huge challenge to me, but it's the same type of craft that digital marketing was even though the opposite totally tangible. Um, and But I'm learning all of these long, difficult types of craft programs that I'm putting together into what will be art. And and that's exciting to me. And, and also, you know, I, I sold my company for enough money for me to have extra money. So <laughs> I have really nice equipment, and that's fun too. Oh, that's I have, awesome. I have a lot of professional sewing machines right now. I can't, that's so funny that you it's, went from your mom in your, in your growing up with that, that, that mentality to proving, proving her you can do it because you want to, right? You, I mean, I think you proved it. Yeah. So I, if you were to leave our listeners with a, a big takeaway that we haven't touched on, uh, what would it be? I think it would be to really understand what your true goal is. And we have talked about this, but understand what your goal is and be true to yourself. Don't say, I, I want to sell this company because I never want to work again. You, you have that personality of, of doing that. Make sure you've got something really exciting that you're going to do. Or create a transition that you're selling the company so that you can so that you can invest even more in the company and grow it. But really make sure that that you're staying true to your own personality and don't let your ego get in the way. Don't sell too soon. You know, don't hang on when you need to bring in somebody more professional than you. Don't hang on when you when you need other things. So I think that that's a really important thing to think about. It's, it's not, that's not new. That's not groundbreaking advice. It's not new, but it's, it's, it's wisdom that is gold because you can put a post-it note and stare at that all day long. And for some reason, you, <laughs> you, your, your mind lets you forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Nina, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Um, they can just go right to our website and the website is ninahale.com. And that's the agency website, and they can contact me through the contact forms there or call the office, and that's always the best and fastest way to get through to me. Somebody will call me even if I'm sewing. <laughs> they'll, they'll call me if I'm needed. So you want to tell our listeners all your days off so we can all just start calling you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, bless the company. They are so wonderful to me because when my school schedule shifts, they shift all the meetings to, to work with my schedule. That's awesome. So, they are wonderful. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank I appreciate you. it. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye.